Okay. So, um, how is the sound quality this morning? It's good. What's gone wrong? <laughs> Surprised me. Anyway, that's good. So, um, I did mention yesterday that I was going to focus on the the latter half of the Anapanasati Sutta, which was dealing with nimittas. But I'm going to go backwards a little bit because there's a simile which I like to introduce at this time. It's an old simile. Many of you have heard it many times before. It's a very beautiful simile and allows me to explain these states and how they develop, where they come from, in a more beautiful way. And that was the old simile of the thousand-petal lotus. And a lotus is closed up at night time. It's a very ancient simile, it's a symbol of Buddhism, the lotus. And it's used in many different ways. But this particular aspect of a lotus is noticing that it closes up at night time. And when the sun, the first rays of the sun, hit the closed lotus, it warms and create some sort of reaction in the outermost petals, and the petals start opening up, uh, layer by layer. You need the warmth of the sun and the light of the sun to open up the outermost petal. And the outermost petal, first of all, if you ever see a lotus flower when it's closed up, the outermost petal doesn't look very promising. You know, it's got no real colour to it if you... Uh, put your nose next to it, it's not going to have much of a fragrance. And it's quite rough, it's very thick. And the ones which I remember seeing like almost like corrugated in order to give it strength to protect the petals inside. And of course that outermost petal receives all the dust and the dirt. So the outermost petal isn't very promising. But when the light and the warmth of the sun hits that outermost petal, the outermost petal opens up and it reveals the next layer of petals. And that's really a real petal on the outside. The outermost petal is more like a sheath, uh, sort of to protect what's inside. But the next layer of petals, you've got some colour to it, a little bit of fragrance, it's more beautiful. But the most important thing is that inside that first layer of petals lies the next layer of petals. And when the warmth and light of the sun hits the outermost petal, that allows it to open up to reveal what's inside. And layer by layer, the petals open up. And the deeper you go into that lotus, the more beautiful are the petals, the more fragrant, the more refined. And that's the way you go deeper and deeper into the lotus flower. Now, one of the most important parts of that simile is what opens up that flower. It is the light and the warmth of the sun. The light stands for mindfulness. The warmth stands for the kindness. So together they form this wonderful combination called kindfulness. And if you focus your kindfulness on this lotus, it opens up layer by layer by layer. And first of all, the outermost layer doesn't look very promising. But inside every lotus, the innermost layers are just so gorgeous and fragrant and amazing. And that's one of the first benefits of this simile, 
it shows even you. Sometimes you think that you're not very promising meditator. Oh, you just started out, or you haven't really got anywhere in meditation. And you think, oh, there's no way they can have anything like nimittas or jhanas within me. Well, the truth of the matter is, you can look at it in such a way that those jhanas are inside of you right now. You just need to open them out in order for you to access them. And this is one reason why when people ask me, can all of us get jhanas? And the honest answer is yes, you can. Not that you will, but you can. When I say not that you will, sometimes you've got to know what to do, or rather what not to do. And I've already given you the clue there, it's kindfulness, that's all. Awareness and kindness, and a lot of patience as well, if it's possible. And I also mentioned to you some of the examples of that. The examples of what I mentioned yesterday, Greg just going in his his room for 20 minutes and not coming out of his meditation for hours. He can manage to get deep inside. Or the other story <laughs> that here, which I usually tell every time, was of this uh, gentleman, he's about 30 or 35, he had a big sort of mop of curly hair, and he came to this retreat uh, wearing traditional Australian um, dress. You know what traditional Australian dress is? Singlet, shorts, thongs. <laughs> that was it. And he had tattoos all over him. And of course, when I saw that, I thought that he'd come to the wrong place. The prison is just up the road. <laughs> if you go to visit some of your friends. He, honestly, he looked the last person you'd expect to be able to come on a meditation retreat. But he said, no, my name's in the book, it was. So uh, I welcomed him. And he was the one who got these jhanas during the retreat. And of course, it really blew my mind. I repeat the story because totally unexpected. You know, he came to the interviews and he said all these amazing experiences which he had. And there's no doubt in my mind that as he described it, that was a real jhana. And I don't confirm jhanas very easily. In fact, there was uh, one person wrote a book and somebody showed me the passage which mentioned me. And it was, uh, I think, a a book by Lee Bassington about the jhanas. And that he mentioned just different teachers who teach jhanas and the ones who are the toughest to get confirmation that you have jhanas. And apparently the number two in the list was really tough for them to, to say, confirm, yes, what you experienced was a jhana. Was, uh, sorry? Paok, yeah. I was thinking of Tongpalu. Paok Saido. Still alive. But if you say what you have been doing in your meditation, for him to confirm you've got a jhana, you have to really tick all the boxes. It doesn't make any compromises. He was number two. But the toughest monk to actually have your jhanas confirmed is <laughs> Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> when I saw that, I'm laughing my head off. You don't say these things happen very easily. So, But nevertheless, some people do it. 
and you admit that and say, well done. And the nicest thing is that you can't really say which one that's going to be. Because some of them, the outermost petals are just so dirty and rough and jagged and unpromising. But inside all of those outermost petals, you've got these beautiful petals inside. And that's a nice encouragement for you. It's possible, you can do it. Now how does it happen? So you've got the light and the warmth of the sun. You just have to shine it, as it were, on this old body and mind of yours. And it starts to open up. And of course, I've mentioned to you how it opens up. The first thing, the mindfulness and kindness sweeping through your body, relaxing this, relaxing that, becoming aware, until your body feels really nice. It's like an, almost like a tranquility of the body comes over you. And it's very pleasant. It's like you're opening up the outermost layer of petals and actually feeling just how your body can be experienced. It's nicely relaxed. Because it relaxes like that, because it's got no business for you anymore, it can kind of open up. And inside that um, outermost, not really the outermost sheet, the next layer of the, the body, inside of that, you know, you find, what? Present moment, now. Actually, I suggest say peace, first of all. As you go to peace, first of all, then inside peace, you find the present moment, like the middle of time, you're going into the center of time. And these things happen naturally, with kindness and awareness. It's one of the reasons why that if you do struggle with the past and the future, please don't give it ill will. Otherwise that past and the future will be strengthened. Give it kindness. Anybody who's hurt you in the past, be kind to them. What you've done to others, be kind to yourself. You're not perfect yet. This is what happens. There's nobody who is that perfect, they never hurt another being. And I've told you many of my stories, uh, times when you know, I didn't do the right thing with others. In the previous retreat, I told uh, the birthday present I gave to my mother when I was, I don't know how old, I think seven or eight years of age. Do you remember that story? How many haven't heard that story? Oh, a lot of you, amazing. Okay. I forget exactly what age I was, maybe seven or eight years of age, around that time. And in the suburb of London where I was living, it was a poor suburb, and they, uh, there was a food craze of pie and eels, or sometimes eels and mashed potatoes, jelly eels sometimes. They had these eels and they fried them or cooked them or somehow or other, and they served with mashed potatoes. It's a very poor person's meal, but it was fashionable for a year. And so it's my mother's birthday. And so I had everything prepared. I had a box and some birthday paper. And I went to the shop and I bought an eel, a live one. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty Ajahn Brahm. And I put the eel in the little box 
and I wrapped the box up with this beautiful uh, birthday greetings paper, as best as about seven or eight year old kid could do it. And I tied a nice bow on it and a little birthday card to mummy with love from your son, Peter. Happy birthday. And of course, when I presented it to her, I was a great actor, even in those days. She didn't suspect a thing. <laughs> and there it was, this little kid, smiling. Happy birthday, mummy. And oh, she was just so touched by it. <laughs> so cute. And then she opened the package quite slowly because she wanted to save the moment too. And then once the wrapping paper had been taken off and she lifted up the lid of the box, this eel, I could not have trained it better. <laughs> the eel just raised its head up and looked my mother in the <laughs> And then there was this almighty scream, ah! And what I did next, I was very careful, even though I must have been quite bright, because I had what we call these days my exit strategy. <laughs> I knew exactly where I was going to run and hide for a couple of hours <laughs> till the heat went down. So I did that. So, yeah, you know, not even in the most outermost petals of the lotus, it can be really awful, but inside is always a beautiful purity and goodness. So that's what you access. So anyway, so inside, the, so I did that, but I'm kind to I was a kid, and my mother still loved me afterwards. She didn't send me to an orphanage or anything, so <laughs> I was still loved and cared for. But anyway, that inside, when you give the kindness to the past and the future, that's the, the warmth of the sun and the mindfulness, the awareness, you find that the past and future can get uh, softened. It's exactly how the Buddha uh, encouraged us as monastics. Whatever you've done by body, speech and mind, which is you know, hurtful to somebody else, it may sound fun to you, but hurtful to others, acknowledge it, be mindful of it, it happened, don't try and deceive yourself, and then give it kindness and forgiveness. And then that's growth, you learn from these things rather than expect them to be big weights around you for a long time, stopping growth in the Dhamma. So when you are in the past and the future, this inner petals of the lotus, then be kind to them. You know what happens when you're kind to them? They open out. And inside, you find what's inside the time, the present moment, just right now. And of course, it already looks much more beautiful than the past or the future. Even the future, always be kind to the future. Give it the benefit of the doubt. Usually we judge it much more harshly than it deserves, the future. We don't know what's going to happen yet. But you know, have a positive attitude to the future. That's one of the reasons why I don't know the last time you gave blood. What's the best blood type? That's right, be positive. <laughs> and anyway, when you, <laughs> when, you <laughs> when you do have the kindness and the awareness onto the present moment, it actually is a very nice place to, to hang out. 
And it's like you shine, you smile at the present moment, the present moment's, moment smiles back at you and you have a good time. That's how you maintain the awareness there. Not by holding it, not by striving, not by concentration, just by the kindness and the, and the mindfulness working together. And the next thing which happens inside of the present moment, that's where you find silence. And again, silence again is a beautiful place to hang out, especially in a place like Jhana Grove. When it's times that there's no meditation going on, no talk, just to be able to go for a walk and find a nice place to sit somewhere. And just even that little um, gazebo on the way to the water tanks up there, it's a beautiful place to sit up there. And if you're lucky, you can see the beautiful views of the sunset. It's comfortable. I shouldn't have told you that, because now everyone goes down there and it loses <laughs> its, its silence and its sense of privacy. But in silence is a wonderful feeling of just, just you and nature just being alone together. You can only converse with nature in silence, not with words. So this is why that you can enjoy the silence, and the silence is right in the centre of the present moment. You're just kind and aware of this present moment, and you find that silence just starts to arise. You can't suggest you can be silent. Silence is what happens when you relax and allow it to open up for you. Okay, now I've mentioned these things before, but inside the silence, you've got the silence petals have opened up now. All you've done is just been aware and be kind, be patient. And after a while, that the silence opens up. You know what you find inside the silence? <sighs> it's your breathing. One of the last things which are moving. And if you get to the breath that way, the breath is very delightful, even at the very beginning. You haven't held it, it's come to you. And it's far more relaxed, you don't have to hold it. And all those different stages of the breath, which we talked about yesterday, you know, just being able to notice long breath, short breath, or whatever breath. And then the full awareness of the breath. And then the delightful breath, it gets more and more delightful as you go on. And so you're going into deeper petals of delightful breath. They just open up, that's all. Now there is one thing which, one of the reasons why I use this simile, there comes a time when the breath is very delightful, then it kind of, inside that awareness of the breath, sometimes you can see some of these lights, these nimittas. And it's a question which you get asked so many times. Yes, my breath is delightful, it's very beautiful breath, very soft, and, and it's you know, almost disappearing. But then I can see these lights in the mind. What should I do? Stay with the breath or just focus on the light? And the question, the answer is, both those things, both those answers are wrong. What to do is to do nothing. Just carry on being aware and being kind, that's all. And kindness is not what, not what you do. You don't tell yourself, oh, I will be kind. Come on, be kind. You're not being kind enough. Is that being kind? <laughs> being a control freak, 
It's the opposite of being kind. That's why I like that uh, simile, the door of my heart is open to you. Whatever happens in my mind, it can be the breath, it can be the lights, whatever you choose. My, the door of my heart is open. That's kindfulness. And if you do that, then when you are just watching this, almost like between two layers of petals, the, the delightful breath layer of petal and the beautiful nimitta layer of petals, sometimes it just depends, the causes and effects, you know, what your mind is ready for. And so what happens is sometimes it's like the petals close up and you're back with your breath. You weren't really ready for the, the light yet. We just carry on, it's still very delightful. I mean, delightful breath is more than good enough. And then it opens up again. And when it opens up, it opens up fully. So you can actually see these beautiful lights. And there's many different uh, types of nimitta which can come up. And again, I mentioned first of all, first of all, for a lot of people, it might be that uh, sheet nimitta, sheet light. Sometimes not that brilliant, and sometimes a little bit dirty, smudgy, like the uh, the dishwashing cloth or dish drying cloth, which you know needs a time in the the washing machine. It's got a bit of smudge on here and dirt on there, but it doesn't matter. That's happening. What happens is inside that dirty sheet. There's always very beautiful limiters. And that simile, I mean, you look at that cloth and there's always a part of that cloth, or that sheet, light, whatever you call it, there's always a part of that which is more beautiful than the rest. And if you have practiced your loving kindness, whatever you see, every human being, every plant, Every scenery, it's always got a part to it which is more beautiful than the rest. And you have the positive attitude of loving-kindness to focus. It draws in naturally, it's not what you do, it's you see the most beautiful part of that sheet of light. And of course I mentioned also yesterday that those kind of dirty things on that sheet, that is like um, reflecting some of the bad behavior which your body and mind have done. But don't worry about that. There's very few people who are saints, who never do anything bad by mistake, or who never actually give their mother a birthday present of an, a live eel. <laughs> we always do stupid things sometimes, each one of us. So. <laughs> What happens is, oh, I shall tell this one, yeah. Uh, one of our monks, I shouldn't say who it is, but you know, he gave a talk the other night at Nolamara. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd mind me saying this. That, <laughs> that uh, I was, you know, the head monk, and so w in the evening time, the head monk is up in the, uh, the dining room uh, with what we call like the attendant monk. The attendant monk's supposed to be looking after you. 
and answering the telephone when any calls come in. And I was uh, sitting next to him, and he was only a novice, he's just learning about being a monk. And he took the telephone, and the phone said, uh, this is, I think, Domino's Pizza. We're at your front gate. This was in the evening, 6 p.m. <laughs> We're at the front gate. Your gate is locked. Um, how can I get in? Somebody has ordered a pizza in the monastery. Uh, and the one making that call, <laughs> pretending to be the delivery man, was that monk <laughs> having a joke at the expense of the attendant monk. <laughs> and he was really confused. He said, hey, somebody ordered a pizza here. Yeah, the attendant monk asked <laughs> me. And straight away I sort of I got onto the phone and found out who it was. I just uh, having a bit of a, of a jest. Well, fair enough. So anyhow, <laughs> where was I going with this one? Oh yeah, that's right, the dirty part. If he'd have done, got a nimiter that evening, it would have been a bit <laughs> smudged somewhere. <laughs> so we, we don't order any pizzas. We've got no money to order pizzas. And not number two is that we can't eat, eat them in the evening anyway. It's just a bit of a jest. But you know, you can get deliveries these days from calls. So if I see any of you waiting up there at six or seven o'clock in the evening, <laughs> I know what you're up to. <laughs> anyway, um, back to if you do have that sort of little bit of dirty limiter, just acknowledge, forgive, and look at the bright side of the limiter, the positive side. And then you just automatically you zoom in. That part of the lotus opens up. That is kindness, not of vindictiveness, not of judgmentalism, not of picking fault with you know you or anybody. And that just grows into a really beautiful nimitta. Now, if those of you who remember the Anapanasati Sutta, the stages 9, 10, 11, number 9 is being able to experience a nimitta. The next one is they call Sampasadhanan. It's, it's, it's a wonderful word, which means like bringing confidence to that nimitta. In other words, leaving it alone. And it also means like brightening it up. Because when you leave it alone, it brightens up by itself. So sometimes these lights you see in the mind, it's just there. Don't do anything, just be kind. Just be mindful. Stay there. Have confidence. No, don't start thinking, oh, this can't be a limiter. Just let it be. Then after a while, that gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And a few people have had these experiences, not just me. But sometimes that limiter gets so bright where you think that you can't watch this any longer. You go blind. But remember, this is not a light you are seeing. Your sense of sight has been turned off. What you are seeing is a mental object. And remembering that, it means it can be as bright as it wants to be. It doesn't make you blind at all. It just makes you sense of being empowered. And with that comes a lot of joy, a lot of bliss. Well, that's lucky if it happens that way. Sometimes the first time you see these nimitas, 
Sometimes I call it like a firework limiter. Flashes in your mind and then dies down again. The reason is, is because, you know, you're just not stable enough yet to allow it to, to um, persist. Very bright, but then disappears very quickly. So what do you do? Just be kind, be patient. You've seen something, well done. But when we want too much, that causes all the problems. So just wonderful, well done. But then after a while you find when it comes up into your mind, it stays longer each time. And then it has a chance to develop. And soon it can come up and instead of just appearing in a flash, it just stays. And you have sustained the awareness on the limiter. The limiter becomes still. And that's you know, what they call the the eleventh stage of the Anapanasati, Samadahang Chitang. You're not concentrating it, that's not what Samadahang means. Samadhi means keeping it still. So it just comes up and stays there. Now with nimitas, people have all sorts of problems. I'm just going to go over a lot of them right now. Sometimes, you know, you see a beautiful light at this stage of the meditation. You've been through the beautiful breath, the delightful breath, and you're very peaceful and still. And then a nimitta appears up here somewhere, not, not central. And sometimes I look at that as like the nimitta is coming to check you out. Are you ready for the nimitta yet? If it comes up here, just appearing at you, what's he going to do now? Then if you go looking at it, it vanishes, disappears. But if you just leave it alone, eventually that limiter centers itself. You don't do anything, it's a message here. And one of the other things with this limiter, it can be more complicated at the beginning. And I mentioned that, I think, I'm not sure if it was in the talk or the questions, that was the uh, the simile of like there's a couple of like interesting complicated nimitta stories. One of those nimitta stories is uh, I'm getting very peaceful and quiet, and then this image came up in the mind. It wasn't just like a light; it was like a face, and this face had his big bulging eyes, like they were coming out of the sockets. And its teeth were all pointed, dripping red stuff. And its hair, this was many years ago, this was before the punks. Because I remember seeing this before, this actually became like a, a common hairstyle, a spiky hair. And around its neck were these skulls. And this monster, this nimitta right in front of me, with its tongue coming out. I must have lost my power because usually when I do that, people go, oh, I'm getting too old. It's like a monster. So, what do you do when you see a monster like that as your nimitta? First of all, if the monster comes and tells you, I've come here to take over your mind. That obviously can't be the case. If a monster wants to take over your mind, they just do it. They won't warn you, first of all. Imagine that somebody knocks at your house. There's a burglar here. I'm coming this evening to rob your house. <laughs> That's not the way to rob a person's house or take over their mind. 
So I knew exactly what these things are, they're creations of your mind. And I know exactly just what it was based on. I think I've been in one of those Tibetan temples a week before, and those Tibetan temples, they have these amazing images of Kali or somebody. And that's what it looked like to me. So what do you do with it? Very easy, because it's a creation of your mind, you can actually mess around with it. So straight away, it's, you know, its eyes were just so just uh, protruding. So I just imagined putting sunglasses on, <laughs> a pair of Ray-Bans, and then it's spikes of its, on its head, on its hair. I put a straw hat on, with a nice little flower coming out of the straw hat. <laughs> and then its mouth with the sharp teeth. I blacked out some of the teeth, so it needed to go to the monster dentist, urgently. <laughs> I forget what else that I did to it, but I totally humiliated, like you when you doodle on that monster, and I end up laughing. It broke the meditation, but that monster never came back again. It never come back to me, because I totally humiliated it. No fun playing with Ajahn Brahm. But anyway, that's what you can do. You do have some control to mess around with these limiters. One of the other limiters which I got was only a few years ago uh, when I was on retreat in my cave. And I was sitting down there and I saw this beautiful yellow shape. Now one of the things with limiters is if you do see one, it's a, a quite a strong limiter, the colour is really weird. It's, if it's a single colour, it's like a colour you, you can recognise a kind of yellow, but more yellow than any yellow. If it's blue, it's really deeply blue. And you will notice that that colour doesn't exist in this world. It's more blue than blue. Or even white. More white than white could ever be. It's, it has a purity to it. But this was like a yellow colour. Very intense yellow, beautiful yellow. And then I notice its shape. And as soon as I notice its shape, that was the end of that meditation. Because the shape was shaped as Garfield the cat. <laughs> I've been <laughs> looking at too many comics in the newspaper. <laughs> Garfield the cat. And that's what it looked like, Garfield the cat, but you know, it's more yellow than Garfield in any sort of uh, cartoon. Really beautiful. <laughs> and I thought, what a stupid limiter. I've never heard Ajahn Chah say the problem with the Garfield limiter. <laughs> but that's sometimes what happens. It's just it's beautiful. And it's sometimes it's uh, composed in a form of you know, what you've been doing earlier. But anyway, eventually just the nibbata becomes very beautiful and very bright. And your job, again, is just to be kind and be mindful. Don't do anything. And at this, you know, I, one of the most important similes, and not one of my similes, this is, of course, Ajahn Chah's simile. And I have to say this every retreat because it's absolutely amazing. This was uh, the simile of the still forest pool. Now, people have talked about that simile, but they haven't. They didn't tell it the way I heard it. I was with Ajahn Chah for eight and a half years, and I was fluent in Lao and in Thai at that time. It's mostly disappeared now because I haven't used much of it. <laughs> 
But nevertheless, at that time, he understood exactly what he was saying. And when he said about the still forest pool, he reminded you of what it was like to be one of these forest monks. We'd go off after five years of being of our basic training. We'd go off uh, you know, in the forests and jungles of Thailand. There were still some jungles left in the uh, northeast, only a few. And you could go there, and it was a beautiful experience just walking just with your bowl and your robe, everything you owned you carried with you into these jungles. And I always noticed that out in the the areas where the paddy fields were, it was always hot and dry. We went into the jungle areas and it was always cool and fragrant. There was always some flower in bloom throughout the year at different times. And you could also smell the um, the poo of the big animals, whether it was tigers or elephants or bears. It was so alive in those places. And if you were a forest monk, you'd always learn to, uh, in the evening, put your mosquito net umbrella, sort of not next to the water, but about 10 meters away from the water's edge. Because in the evening, the animals would come to drink, to wash and to play by the still forest pool. And if you were too close, the animals would be scared of you. And I know big animals like elephants and tigers may be scary, but you must know that they are more scared of you than you are of them. More tigers have been killed by human beings than human beings killed by tigers. So he said that sometimes, he was telling some of his stories, he would put his mosquito net umbrella up 10 meters or so from the edge of the lake. And it may be like a full moon evening or the you know, some of the moon was up. And in the evening he would keep his eyes open. And then he would see the animals come out from the forest to drink and play by the still forest pool. And he said that this was in the days before, I don't know what it's called, National Geographic, Nature Channel, whatever. Sometimes you can see these movies of animals in the wild. But of course there was none of that for the monks in those days. So you could actually see them alive. You sit there and these animals would come out. The first animal would come out, the leader, maybe the male, and would look around to check everything was safe. And that's when Ajahn Chah said he had to be the one who was still. And if he moved, he said, wow, look at that. Ooh, that's a big tiger. If he said anything or showed any movement, those animals would sense straight away there was a human being there. And they would go back into the bush and not come out all evening. Even though they were thirsty, it was much better they were safe. But he said... Because he was a monk, he trained in being still. So he could sit there with his eyes open. When the animals came out, he was so still, they didn't know there was a human being there. 
And once the first one had come out, then the whole family would come out. They go to that lake or that riverside, the still forest pool, and they start drinking and then washing and playing like little animals do. He said it was delightful to be able to watch those animals play by the still forest pool only when he was really still. And he said that's like meditation. If you want to see some of the beauties of nature, you have to be very still. Because if you say, wow, or if you get afraid, then of course whatever you're watching just disappears. It runs away, doesn't come out again for days. But then he said, when the ordinary animals come out to play, then later on, some very rare and beautiful animals come out. And I always remember him saying this. These are animals which his teachers and parents never told him existed. They were gorgeous animals, so beautiful, but also very, very shy. So if he just said, wow, under his breath, they would hear that and they would go back into the bush and won't come out again. But if he was really still, those animals would come out and play by the still forest pool. So that's the nimittas and the jhana experiences. They only come out when you, the one which is looking, are perfectly still. That's the big sadness of these experiences. So many of you, you just, you meditate for so long and then you get one of these experiences and you go, wow, ah! <laughs> and you blow it. <laughs> and you don't have to be afraid at all. Those animals, the jhanas and limiters don't eat you. <laughs> and you don't die. As I mentioned here, sometimes people, when these experiences happen, you can't feel any of your breath happening. Ah, I'm not breathing. You're breathing enough. You don't die in these places. And I already mentioned about that guy, Greg, who wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't breathing. He was, his heart wasn't moving. His brain was, was flatlined. He was having a wonderful time. Just, but if you do that, make sure that if you have, have got a wife or a husband, they don't know what you're doing because otherwise they'll scold you as well. <laughs> that was the only unpleasant thing, but not really unpleasant at all. So when uh, these things happen, shh, you can do all the wows and all of the yes afterwards. Enjoy it to the max first of all, then afterwards. <laughs> uh, you can actually do all the wows and stuff. Also, I must say, that afterwards, that's when, you know, you can record exactly what happened. Other times when you have these very deep experiences, people think, I'd better take some sort of note. I've got to remind, I've got to tell Ajahn Brahm about this, or I've got to tell my wife about this, or I've got to tell somebody about this. Shut up. Because these are very powerful experiences, you remember them so easily. It's the case that, again, it's very hard to find an adequate English word for these. The only word which comes close but has many deficiencies is trauma. 
the trauma is you're so alert because the danger to your life, you remember everything perfectly, you can't get it out of your head. So this is similar intensity, but no danger at all, no negativity. But very easy to remember. Which is one of the reasons why when you have one of these experiences, you don't need to take notes or try to remember. Enjoy it as long as you can. When you come out afterwards, you'll be able to record everything easy. Maybe like, what was that? And then you can almost like relive it. So these are powerful experiences. And when you allow the ordinary animals to come out first, then amazing animals come out. It gets better and better, but these are things which not many people tell you about. It's one of the reasons why I keep talking about these things so much, because when they do come up, which they can and they will, you want to know what's going on. Which means you know what to do with these things, so you don't waste the opportunities. But just seeing like nimittas, what they actually are, as I mentioned, this is a reflection of your mind, of your sixth sense, the jitter freed from all the other senses. That's one of the reasons why the twelfth of the Anapanasati uh, things you're supposed to do is Ramochiyang, the jitta, to free it. And in all of the uh, teachings of the Buddha, when they talk about such freedom of the mind, it always refers to the jhanas. Because that's a good description of what a jhana is. Your mind is free of so many things. One of the things that's free of, which is an obvious one, you really are now free of the five senses. They disappear for a long time, you know, for hours. And just have your mind there. So it gives you an opportunity to really get to know what this mind is. It's just you and your you and the mind. So when you understand what this mind is, afterwards when you come out of those jhanas, one of the first things, which is an obvious thing, is that you realize that there's more to you than these five senses. And these five senses are pretty coarse compared to the mind. And it also means you don't have to be a, an Einstein to realize that you don't need to be afraid of death anymore. The only thing that death is, is the five senses stopping. And in death they stop for good. So you understand a lot of what death is and are never afraid of it again. How can you be? You know that this is not the end of a human being. It's not the end of an animal, but it's the end of the five senses. An opportunity to understand what the nature of your mind is. And also it gets to see much more about how we can take these things to be me, a minor self. I mean, who are you? Are you a woman? A man? These are just a body. You're not a woman or a man. I'm not a monk, you're not a nun. These are what's on the outside of us. When we actually see what we really are inside, it's something which is much older. When you have access to this mind and it gets very strong, of course you can ask yourself that question which I said, what's your earliest memory? In states like that, when you come out of a, a jhana, you've got so much power, you ask a question like that, 
and straight away your mind will go and pick out an early memory for you. And it is a true memory. But sometimes you just want to confirm it. One of these ladies, she was one of these ladies, such a good um, supporter of our Buddhist uh, society here in Perth. And really, really good, kept, keeps precepts, is always kind. And she told me that when she did that, after a nice meditation, she asked what's her earliest memory. And she remembered when she was a baby, um, breastfeeding. And the problem was, she looked up at the woman breastfeeding her, and it wasn't her mum, it was someone else. And that really freaked her out. She came to see me in the interview and said, look, I followed your instructions, but I don't know if I should have done, because I got really freaked out. I saw the person breastfeeding me wasn't my mother, it was somebody else. Was I adopted? Because that happens with sometimes, that sometimes, you know, that you're adopted and somebody, you know, your real mother gives you away and you grow up with some other family. And I told her, I said, let's go and ask your mum. I knew her mum. Go and ask her and see what she says. <laughs> so she got the nerve up to ask her mother, Mum, am I really your, mother, your child? And of course the mother said, what on earth are you talking about? Of course you are. Why do you ask such a question? I said, well, you know, in the meditation, I was following Ajahn Brahm's advice, I asked what's my earliest memory. And I saw very clearly myself as a little baby breastfeeding, and it wasn't you who was breastfeeding me. And the mother, instead of being shocked, was really interested. So what did that woman look like? There's something to this. And so this lady described what this woman looked like. And the mother was, we have a word which is, was quite discombobulated. That's one of my favourite words, discombobulated. <laughs> like gobsmacked, like really astounded. And mother said, amazing description of your wet nurse. I did give birth to you, but I came from a very wealthy family, so we hired a wet nurse for you. I don't know how you can remember what she looked like, because you were only just a few weeks old at the time. So this is actually what happens, and these are true memories. And of course, if we go back into previous lives, that's also very interesting. But you have the power now, you've got almost like access to this thing we call the mind. And when you can do that, it starts to make many of these teachings of Buddhism far more accurate. It's not accurate, but far more uh, accessible to you. These aren't beliefs. These are what you find out for yourself. But one of the biggest of those is that many of you have already said to me, either in interviews or just in passing conversations, you said that you come on these retreats, you really want to give some time to your meditation, because what you want more than anything else is actually to end this life at least as a stream winner. So you don't have to get reborn in the lowest realms. At least you want to find something about you know, the truth of who you are. 
how you work. What is this thing inside of you, which sometimes you think is a self? And I often noted that there's two parts, two things which you associate with the sense of self. One of them is you know, the doer, your will, and the other one is the knower, you know, the consciousness. There's other things like the sense of self being your body, but people realize you're not your body. I once was a theoretical physicist, but I'm not now. If somebody asked me to explain quantum theory, <laughs> I'd really be in trouble. That's what I used to do. Who are you now? Certainly you're not your body. All your knowledge, all of that is goes quite quickly as you get older. And all your knowledge about hydrology, Prem, is these young people just out of university know much more than you do. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? That's why you have to retire. <laughs> but, but I think I did, didn't I do the simile on one of the question times about the tadpole and the frog? No, okay. It's one of the great similes which explains why these experiences when the body disappears and just have the mind there, the jhanas are so important. It's a nice little story to end this morning's talk on. Once upon a time, there was a little tadpole. And the tadpole, she was born in a pond in a retreat center somewhere. And this and little tadpole was a very good little tadpole. She went to school in the, in the pond, and she was so clever that she went even to the high school in the pond and even did a university degree in the pond in hydrology. <laughs> she knew much more about water than Prem did, at least she thought she did. And when she graduated, she even managed to to listen in to discussions of these senior monks and nuns who knew all about you know, the elements, especially the water element, and she even knew the deepest Abhidhamma theory of water. But you think little tadpole, even though she was a professor of hydrology, understood what water was? She knew the theory, but because little tadpole had been born in water, grew up in water, studied in water, lived all her life in water, she knew no more about water than the fish knows about water. Because it was always there. Then one day, one day a little tadpole, she started to grow legs and arms, really weird. What are these other things growing on my body? She was becoming a frog. And one day, a little tadpole, now a frog, not really knowing what she was doing, jumped. And she was out of the pond. She was squatting on dry land. That was really weird. Like, if that happened to some of you, you think, wow, what's going on? And I want to be back in the meditation hall. I want to be back in the real world. I want to be the real world. 
I know a lot of times you've been telling me this in the interview. You said, yes, this is nice coming here, but what do I go back, what do I do when I go back to the real world? Come on. Where you live, is that the real world? Everyone wears makeup and hair dye and wigs, deodorant, they cover up their body, everything is sanitized, everything is I remember going into a a shopping mall. That's so unreal in the shopping. The colours are unreal, the light is unreal, they got music being played which is unreal. <laughs> and you call that the real world? Watching the TV and the uh what they call those TV shows? Uh, reality TV? It's not reality TV. People are always acting and making it up. So anyway, this is the real world. So when you say, oh, you're going back home, please don't say that's the real world. So I'm going back to the fake world again. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, a little tadpole, now a frog, She's into a state she's never experienced before, dry land. Something which was always there, water, has disappeared. You know what that word mean? That word, we would say in Pali, it, something always been there has disappeared. It's called anicca. Nietzsche is something which is constant, regular. Uh, something like food which comes every Tuesday. I know there's uh, someone, uh, she'll be bringing some of the lunch for the monks tomorrow, uh, today. She's been coming every Tuesday for I don't know how many years. That's what we call Nietzsche food, a regular supply of food. But when something which has been coming all that time stops, that's called Anicca. So when like water disappears, it's always been there. Now you have an opportunity of knowing what water really is. That strange stuff which is now gone. And what happens in these deep meditations, what goes? First of all, your five senses, and with it your physical body. Now is the first time you can know what your body really is. You have theories before, you think you know, but when it's truly gone, then you understand what it is. You know what your body is? A pain. <laughs> it's really a heavy mass. I don't know why anybody celebrates it. Because when it disappears, that's the best. You know, sometimes you feel comfortable, sometimes you have a good lunch, sometimes have a good rest, sometimes you get the aircon on and it's just nice temperature. But it's never as pleasant as when the whole body vanishes. That really is cool. That's the most beautiful sight in the whole universe, is when you stop seeing. The most beautiful sound is silence. I don't mean some other sound you take to be silence. I mean when everything turns off. The best feeling is when you have no feeling left at all. Everything is peaceful. So those are the sorts of things which sometimes people, oh, Ajahn Brahm is crazy, he's mad. Or any monks who say this in wonderful times. 
any person who goes off and goes all the way from Indonesia, pays a lot of money to come here and do nothing. Can't you do nothing in Jakarta? <laughs> then you realize this is amazing. And so first, and that's his, that is basically the bliss of the first jhana, just the body vanishing. But the bliss of the second jhana, that really gets powerful. Because that's where something else disappears. For the first time in your existence, something which has always been there is now vanished. You know what that is? Your will. Your choice. Now which does? It's not there anymore. It's gone. That's one of the reasons why in these jhanas, it's not you can stay for hours. You've got no choice. You just stay for hours. Have a wonderful time, but you just it's not up to you. There's no button to press. There's no switch to click. That which you thought to be your sense of will and the power to control you, your mind, other people sometimes, that has just been taken away. It's just disappeared. You can't find anything to do anything. That's weird. It's really cool. Blissful. Imagine, you just, it's not that you decide not to do anything. That's not, I mean, the absence of will. Actually, you choose not to exert your will. You choose to kind of to let go. That's not real letting go. When the thing which does the letting go vanishes. You can't do anything else except let go. Everything is gone. When your will disappears, then you understand what will is. When, when air disappears, you understand what air is. When water disappears, you understand what water is. When your body disappears, you've got a chance to understand what your body is. When the will disappears, you can understand what the will was. You know, we always think our will is our biggest asset. We protect it in constitutions, human rights, the ability to choose what you want to do, when you want to do it, where you want to do it. And you think the problem is, you don't think the will is a problem, we assume that it's just because our will is stupid. If we can train our will to have more metta, more wisdom, and just to do better things with it, they would have a wonderful life. Until you find out, after these deep meditation experiences, that the will is fundamentally an enemy. It causes you so much strife. But anyway, you won't believe that. If you do, you're just imagining it. That was kind of one of the talks which I gave to the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore years ago. Uh, the uh, invitation of the president at that time. He was, the, he was a lawyer. And he said, Look, Ajahn Brahm, we've heard two bad bricks uh, opening the door of your heart uh, so many times. Can't you tell us something deeper? So I did. 
The following morning when he picked me up to take me to breakfast, he said, Ajahn Brahm, please never do that again. <laughs> I never slept all night. <laughs> A really funny response. Because when I mention stuff like that, that actually goes deep into the idea of who you take yourself to be. When you, you don't just say that's the truth, you say this is what you see. This is how you see it. And find it out for yourself. And that changes you, shocks you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> okay. So anyway, we have the interviews now. But also remember those pieces of paper outside with the questions on.